Hello, and welcome to the Biology Society of South Australia podcast, where we bring you conversations on all things biology in our state. I'm your lovely host, Bradley Bianco. In today's episode, we're going to something a little bit different. We've got Bev Maxwell and Colin Wilson here, who are residents of KI, and they're part of a petition to stop some proposed development in Flinders Chase National Park. They're going to break down for us the details of the development, the biological implications, and why the public should be concerned about the precedent that this development may set for other national parks in South Australia. Colin and Bev, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. So thank you for taking some time to come over from the K- from KI to the mainland. And I know you've had a very busy schedule organising meetings and stuff. It must be a very busy time for you. And you're here for an important reason. So tell us a little bit about yourselves and what it is that you guys do. Well, I'm Bev Maxwell. I've lived on Kangaroo Island for 15 years and I'm a volunteer with the Friends of Parks, KR Western Districts. And uh, as a volunteer with the Friends of Parks, we hold regular working bees and our particular patch that we do it is related to Flinders Chase National Park and the conservation parks that are in the region around that. Our interest is particularly related to environmental protection, uh, habitat restoration, community engagement with the park and generally undertaking various activities that will enhance the status of the public parks. Yeah, great. And uh, I'm Colin Wilson. Um, I've got an ecology background. I majored in ecology at Flinders Uni many, many long years ago. And uh, since then I've been, most of my work has been in the Northern Territory, uh, working uh, first of of all with the uh, Department of Prime Industry and then later on with uh, Parks and Wildlife, and uh, I did a lot of work. Uh, I guess my main interest would be insect plant interactions and um, and uh, weeds and, and uh, that sort of thing. So I've had quite a lot of involvement in uh, projects relating to um, endangered invertebrates, which is probably not something that people think about. Not on much. many people's <laughs> radars, is it? No, and so uh, I guess that's my my background and. Uh, been living on Kangaroo Island now for about, what, about 14 or 15 years or something like that and uh, been involved with Friends of Parks for pretty much all of that time. Great and this area that you guys are looking after as part of the Western District's Friends of the Parks, can you tell me a little bit about what this area is like? Well there's a number of parks, uh, both conservation parks and national parks. The main national park is Flinders Chase National Park and then you've got uh, other associated pa- uh, conservation parks. We've got Kelly Hill Caves, Mount Taylor Conservation Parks. So there's actually a range of habitat that the Friends of Parks are involved in from the north coast to the south coast and the main west end of the island. A third of of the island is National Park and uh, of that third, quite a lot of that comes under our, not so much jurisdiction, but... Your custodianship. Custodianship, yes, that's a lovely word, isn't it? So you've got quite an array of vegetation types and soil types and just landscape within that Flinders Chase National Park. Plus we have an interest in the heritage of it as well because there's the lighthouse keepers' cottages, the lighthouses and heritage buildings and we take an interest in those as well. So it's both environmental and heritage. But a lot of our interest is working with National Park staff Mm -hmm. to encourage 
people to come to the parks yeah. because we realise that that way they'll get an appreciation mm. for the magnificent flora and fauna that exists on Kangaroo Island. And it is really important because the area is a large park and we are getting less and less wild places, mm -hmm. not only in South Australia, but throughout the world Absolutely. as development takes over. Absolutely. So we're keen to get a message of uh, conservation and protection. And Flinders Chase was the second national park developed in South Australia. It's its 100 year anniversary 100 year, year right? anniversary in October. And it's tremendous to think that 100 years ago, people could recognise the value mm. of setting aside a part of the public estate for the protection and conservation of our great um, animals and plants and and fungi that are a bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, the, and, and the, the area that uh, is under contention at the moment is where the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail goes through, and that's pretty much along the, the south coast of the park, and that's fairly largely through limestone, sort of coastal limestone um, heathland mainly. Mm -hmm. um, the park itself in the north, you've got I think I believe that the, uh, the tallest tree in South Australia is a sugar gum somewhere up oh, in the wow. north cool. of uh, uh, it's actually in the Ravine de Cossor's Wilderness Protection Area, which is adjoins Flinders Chase to the north. But down the south, where the Wilderness Trail goes, it's it's largely heathland, a bit of eucalyptus remota, which is a sort of fairly stunted little mallee yeah. eucalyptus. As well as the coastal areas, you've also got the riverine habitat along the Rocky River, which is one of the very few unspoilt river systems in South Australia, probably in Australia. Uh, so part of the walk does go across, go, part, go through that. It also goes through one of the lakes, uh, freshwater lakes, um, further to the east. So there's a range of habitat from forested areas to the coastal areas, mm -hmm. sand dunes, so there's quite a range of habitat that the trail... It sounds incredibly across. diverse and one of the things that strikes me about this area is that it is an enormous section of contiguous nature that just doesn't exist anywhere else. Well it is and, and I think probably the stretch of, of coastline between the Cape Border Lighthouse which is on the sort of top northeastern, sorry, uh, northwestern sorry, corner of Kangaroo Island down to Cape Nakuni Lighthouse which is right down in the south. And that would probably be the single longest stretch of coastline anywhere in South Australia, which does not have any man-made structure on it up until now. Up um, until now. Yes. Mm. And that brings us to what we're here to talk about. What's going on? Well, the Kangaroo Wilderness Trail currently has four campsites uh, where people um, obviously can camp either independently or with uh, guided tours and things. There is a proposal to put accommodation on the trail and this proposal was identified as early as 2013 and subsequently the management plan for Flinders Chase and the other West End parks was amended so that accommodation could be placed. However, the amendment to the management plan was that the accommodation would be along the trail. Mm -hmm. So it was identified that it would be uh, low scale, fact, the, the actual terms, sense, ecologically yes. sensitive accommodation along the trail. That's, that's uh, nebulous at best, mm. in my opinion. But it does say within the minor development zones, and the minor development zones are articulated um, in the management plan as to where they are. Now, the main issue is that the Australian Walking Company, who had 
who was awarded the tender to develop the plan for these um, accommodation areas has decided its development plan is to put two accommodation villages, so not small scale, significant villages and associated infrastructure away from the trail, meaning there's an additional six kilometres or almost six kilometres of additional walking trail and roads that need to be built to service these accommodation villages. Right. The villages themselves, each one of them consists of ten separate buildings. There's seven tourist accommodation buildings, each of which hold two uh, accommodation for sleeping for two mm-hmm. um, guests, plus with a, an ensuite bathroom. There's a, a guide building, which is where the guides stay, but it also doubles as a fire refuge for all 17 people who are likely to be on the site at any one time. There's also a utility building, which is where they have keep things like gas bottles and, yeah. and their vehicle and fuel and that sort of stuff. And then there's a dirty great big hall, lounge dining hall, which is about the size of an average uh, Adelaide four-bedroom house. It's, uh, it's 18 metres by nine metres that looms over the entire site. So that's at each of the two sites. And they're on exposed headlands, which mm-hmm. uh, in the Sandy Beach case, it looks over a, a, one of the only beaches in the whole of the west end of Kangaroo Island that has public access. And the other one is on a headland at Sanderson Bay, which will be visible from people walking on the Kangaroo Island walking trail, wilderness trail, um, for a number of kilometres in either direction. In addition to that, if that's not sufficient, there's uh, lookouts planned, two of them uh, at Sandy Beach. There'll be lookouts overlooking the beach and also at Sanderson Bay. There'll be a track that goes from the accommodation down to Sandy Beach. And there's also, of course, rainwater tanks. Mm. And then we have things called staging posts, which is where the items will be delivered like first. Like food drops or something Food like drops that. or... Um, gas and all those yep. things that are actually away from the accommodation that will then need to be ferried to the accommodation. So that we're not talking about a lodge, although mm-hmm. that's how it's described. So we're not talking about one building, we're talking a significant number and we actually feel that a village best describes mm-hmm. what's being proposed in those areas. Uh, to me it doesn't particularly sound small scale or ecologically sensitive. Well, that's, that would be exactly our point and that is the main reason that uh, the Friends of Parks on Kangaroo Island, all three Friends of Parks groups on Kangaroo Island have gone on strike because uh, we're just so disgusted that the Department of Environment and Water have rolled over to the Australian Walking Company's demands to put these um, accommodations on exposed and remote headlands yeah. miles from the uh, from the actual walking trail. I've done the Great Southwest Walk in Victoria through some beautiful coastal country and I was quite satisfied with a rainwater tank and a small shelter and a bit of interpretive signage, but this sounds like it's enormous. It's it's, and the other thing about the Great Southwest Walk is it's all publicly owned, and this is not the case, is it, with the KI? No, with the accommodation proposed accommodation on the trail, uh, will be privately uh, leased by um, the Australian Walking Company. Uh, the forty-year lease that they have for it. And as well as those two, the accommodations they want to build on the coast, they will also have management of the lighthouse keepers' cottages at Cape Takuti, which are heritage-listed cottages that have long been favourite accommodation Mm. for uh, visitors and locals on KI. In terms of other options, we recognise that not everybody wants to put up their tent and stay overnight. And so 
already there are ways that people can manage this. So we have two or three companies already on the island who will drop people off at the start of each day's walk and then pick them up at the end of it so that they can then go to mm-hmm. their accommodation where they can be fed and have showers and yeah. whatever luxury things they There are services like want. this for the Heisen so, Trail. Yes, so yeah. that there's those services already existence outside of the park. But what is being proposed is actually building these places on the park. And the campsites themselves that are in existence are all pulled back from the coastline, snug in areas which are protected from the wild elements and they are very well set up so there's privacy between independent walkers and those who are going with with tours and things. Mm -hmm. So those campsites are quite comfortable sort of thing you're talking about but even perhaps even a little bit beyond that too. So what do you think their thinking is about putting them so far away from the existing trail? Well I think what it comes down to is uh, what, well, what they would say is that the sort of people who use their services expect to get exclusivity and they, they feel entitled to something more than what the average person gets because you know, they charge a lot of money for people to stay in their accommodation. And if you pay that sort of money, you don't want to be there with the hoi polloi. And, you know, people like me. <laughs> they, exactly. They don't want to be with people like you, you or me. <laughs> and they want to have exclusivity. And so they expect to have a headland views of along the coast um, to be away from the other walkers. Hmm. So it's that exclusive side and also marketing. They want to show pictures as they do on their on other walks on their website. They, they want to show pictures of sitting in the uh, long house with sipping your Chardonnay and looking out across your private beachfront that nobody else can have. So it's that exclusive experience that you have that other people can't have. Yeah, the irony is this is all taking place on something called the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail. Uh, Yes, one might see the irony in that because uh, essentially what they're saying is that the only way we can save the wilderness is by destroying it first. (laughs) Um, The government will sort of say that we need the income from this sort of thing and the only way we can get the income is by building buildings in the middle of it which destroys it. You're right, it's, uh, it's very ironic especially when you read some of the literature within the KR Wilderness Trail booklets that talks about the necessity to look after this special place. You know, the the strong messages within the Wilderness Trail material that's presented to walkers and to those who are interested in doing the walk very strongly presents a strong environmental ethos Mm -hmm. and yet, as Colin says, this is totally undermining the ethos that's trying to be explained. And also what... AWC argue that they, with their clients, they take a very strong focus on protection and conservation and they proudly talk about the number of eco-tourism awards they've got. Our question is, really, if you believe what you're saying about being an environmentally sensitive company, then you would not be proposing to build in totally untouched, Mm -hmm. pristine, vulnerable coastal areas on some of the, the sand dunes and other places that are incredibly fragile and vulnerable. And to be quite honest, if I was a, a person who was going to be staying in those lodges, the idea of a sandblasted coastal area where the southerly winds come roaring through, where you don't get to see many native animals or um, birds and things because it's, uh, it's, it's not the landscape yeah. that attracts those, or a snug little place mm. where it's protected, sheltered, you still have good views, but you've got 
a much more congenial environment, yeah. I think I'd prefer that. So how much land is actually being proposed to be cleared? Well, the, the total area is, is quite small, I guess, in, in terms of hectares. And, and I guess the, the Australian Water Company always sort of refer to what a tiny proportion of the entire park is being cleared as if that makes it okay. But I guess what I would say is that it's, it's more that it's the fragmentation, the actual size in hectares of, of where you're under the buildings is, is almost immaterial. It's, it's a number of kilometres of road and track and the buildings at Sanderson Bay at least are on a, an old stabilised sand dune mm. uh, which is very exposed now to erosion. And the thing with, with uh, allowing new roads and tracks into areas, wilderness areas like this is that it's been shown that tracks and roads are things that feral cats will follow to get into to access new remote areas. Uh, that's been shown by, uh, by research. Already along the Wilderness Trail, these weeds are, are, are appearing. Uh, it acts as another... Um, a vector for introduction. A vector for a new, a new place in the new remote areas. Pathogens, uh, the uh, um, Phytophthora cinnamomi, which is a, a particularly uh, nasty... Root rot uh, fungus. Root, root rot um, pathogen in, uh, is quite common on Kangaroo Island, but uh, it isn't in those remote areas. But... Uh, and I guess one of the things, one of the risks with that too, is that two of the most susceptible species are the, the yakka, which is Xanthoria, and um, the, the desert banksia, which is Banksia ornata. Both of those are highly susceptible, and both of those are key habitat elements for the uh, endangered kangaroo island dunna, which has been discovered uh, just last year within two kilometres of, uh, of one of their uh, accommodation sites. And also the yakkas are locations where the green carpenter bee... Um, yeah, they make their the, nests in the yeah. flower stalks, right? Oh, yes, they actually drill into it. Um, they're, again, they're a, a specialist bee that uh, is in, endangered and the impact of losing your yakkas has mm. huge... Uh, it's, it's quite The consequences of losing yakkas or um, having them die back yeah. has an impact across a number of endangered species. And, and if I can make a comment about the green carpenter bee, from my, from my entomological background... Please do, please do. <laughs> ..is that uh, it's actually the, the first invertebrate that's been included on an endangered species list in South Australia. So oh, wow. it's actually, it's pretty special. It's the only yeah. one that's, uh, that's uh, uh, on the threatened species list. So these are under the EPBC Act, the, the Kangaroo Island Dunart, the Hooded Plover is another one that I read about in the management plan. Yes, So. How is it that this development is not infringing on the EPBC Act? Well, that is a question that we are asking because the Dunnar, particularly, it's, it's, uh, it's listed as endangered both under the South Australian National Parks Act, uh, it's endangered under the federal EPBC Act, it's also on the critically endangered list at the IUCN, and according to the, the, uh, a researcher called Rosie Honan, who has just finished doing PhD work on the, on the Dunnart in Flinders Chase National Park, the site, which is two kilometres away from the Sanderson Beach accommodation village, it's two kilometres away. That, according to her, is well within the foraging range of an individual. Yeah. So road traffic and there's a whole list of things. But what are some of the other biological implications from this proposed development? I can imagine, you know, edge effects from the road. You're changing light dynamics, nutrient dynamics, hydrological dynamics. All, all of those, and, and even even light at night, um, these places are going to be lit up like Christmas trees in the middle of a wilderness area. And so, I mean, nobody's even looked at the impact on things like bats and, and uh, other invertebrates and birds and, and mammals in the area. But, but having a whole series of 
you know, brightly lit buildings in the middle of the wilderness is going to cause, quite apart from just the aesthetic thing of having a, what was once a complete wilderness coastline all of a sudden having two sets of bright lights sparkling along it. Yeah. And, and the reality is that these buildings are going to be visible. The Sanderson Bay one will be visible for quite a long way because the trail goes along the coastline and you'll be able to see both leading up to that accommodation and got moving away from it, you'll be able to see it from both ends. So what was a clifftop wilderness experience for walkers will suddenly be infringed upon because those mm. buildings will be noticeable. And when we come to Sandy Beach, the thing about Sandy Beach is that, as Colin said, it's one of only a couple of places that uh, people can actually get down to the beach on uh, Kangaroo Island because a lot of it is very high clifftop. People can walk, uh, they can't drive to that, they drive to a point and then walk, it's about mm-hmm. two kilometres to Sandy Beach. Now there's no, you actually walk down the dry riverbed, so there's no trail that's marked there, there's no picnic spot, there's no signs. You get the sensation when you're at Sandy Beach that you could be the first people who've ever yeah. walked there. However, that's going to be lost because you're going to get to Sandy Beach and as admitted quite freely by the uh, proponents, AWC, when you're on Sandy Beach, you're going to look up and you're going to see those buildings. So there's that visual intrusion and there's that sense of wonderment and excitement of the experience of feeling like you're in a place where all there's no human signs, apart from, sadly, some plastic washed up, but there are no signs of habitation. You could be on a totally natural... You are on a totally natural beach and that will be lost. Yeah. So at the start of this conversation, you mentioned part of the role of the parks group, the Friends of the Parks group, is to encourage people to visit these parks. So it sounds like you're not opposed to people coming and enjoying the park. What do you propose as a solution? If not this development, then what? Well, firstly, we need to establish that we are not protesting about there being accommodation in the park. That was put through in the amendments to the management plan, as we said, but small-scale in the development zones along the trail. So we're not opposed to people coming and and staying in accommodation. We are opposed to that location. But as also said, that there are there is already opportunities mm. for people to do that on outside of the park. But if it is got if it is going to happen on park, it needs to be where it was outlined on the trail and it should be limiting as much as possible the disruption and disturbance to the park through additional Mm -hmm. tracks and things. So that's where we we stand and say this is, its location is totally inappropriate. The sort of infrastructure that has to be built because of where it's being located, the additional roads and tracks that have to be built makes this a development that we cannot support. So where do we go from here? Well, this has been going on, the campaign's been going on since we first heard about it. And I'd like to just make it clear, there was no opportunity for public consultation on this. Uh, in February 2018, the then Minister for the Environment and the Minister for Tourism under the Labor government announced a press release that AWC had been awarded the right to develop a proposal for accommodation. And in that press release it quite clearly stated small scale along the trail. The next that we heard about it was an information session that was held in Kingscote after the development proposal had been put in. 
And that proposal went through the State Commission Assessment Panel as a development one, uh, the Category 1 development. I'm not going to go into great details about that, but the main thing that people need to understand is that there is no opportunity for public consultation mm -hmm. into that process. Uh, the groups, but the Kangaroo Island Natural Resources Management Board was able to make a comment and they opposed the location of the accommodation. So that process was a closed process. Yeah. People made submissions, but SCAP you know, didn't have to look at them, didn't have to do it. The Department for the Environment and Water endorsed the proposal. There were letters from the department and the departmental people appeared at the SCAP endorsing and supporting AWC's proposal. Yeah. So it wasn't a separate, they, they were endorsing it. The Native Vegetation Council was one of the, had to make comments on the proposal because of the significant amount of untouched native vegetation mm. that was going to be cleared. Ironically, SCAP made its decision before the Native Vegetation Council made its findings. And there were a huge number of submissions against the proposal to the Native Vegetation Council. I don't know exactly how many, but I know there were well over 20 that went in of people opposing it. And these are from people who are eminent biologists, conservationists. There was a comment from the Kangaroo Island Council who sent the information to the Native Vegetation Native Vegetation Council saying that uh, the Kangaroo Island community had strongly indicated it was opposed to it. Overwhelmingly, where there's been any chance of community saying something, mm -hmm. they have, but... Yeah, it's the, the, falling on deaf ears. Yes, and the processes to do it, to actually have a say in this development through the SCAP does not allow for community consultation. And one of the things that uh, the Australian Walking Company have been saying recently is that there have been there were 20 different consultations on Kangaroo Island uh, between, you know, between them and the community and private interests. I should point out that there were only three information sessions that were held that the public was invited to, and all of those, there was unanimous opposition to their proposal, and as far as I can see, you can't call it a consultation if mm. there's 100% consulting, and you don't actually then do anything about it. Yeah. You, just, you just say you've consulted because you asked everybody. They all said no, and then you went ahead and did it anyway. That yeah. is not consultation. And anyway, it was done after their plans yeah, had already been submitted. after the plans right. were submitted. So if it's being steamrolled ahead, what course of action are you guys thinking about taking? Okay. Well, we've got a number of things that we're doing. There is going to be a legal challenge because at this stage uh, we've exhausted the very limited ways that we could put any input. That doesn't mean to say that we're just sitting back and, and um, letting it all happen. We have a Facebook page, we have over a thousand people who have indicated their interest through the Facebook page, we've got a crowdfunding um, going on to help support the legal challenge. Uh, we're trying to do as much promotion, we've got badges and stickers and we will be holding a rally sometime in, in Adelaide. We held one earlier in the year, organised very quickly on a 42 degree day. Um, we got 500 people there and that was just back in February when the whole thing was just taking off. Mm -hmm. We're hoping to do another rally, this time with um, much more advance warning and uh, notification. And we really want to get the message across that what happens in Flinders Chase National Park can happen in other parks. We know mm. that already there's plans for South Australia. 
we understand there's at least 12 other proposals for private accommodation in parks around Australia, including Tasmania, which has already had this issue, mm -hmm. um, Hinchinbrook Island in Queensland, Northern Territory, Uluru and Northern Territory, and uh, also um, uh, New South Wales. So this is not just Flinders Chase. Mm. It's happening all over Australia. So if you've got a favourite place in a national park that you used to think was, it's a national park, it's safe. Think again. Think again. And dangerous that's, that's a very dangerous precedent. And I, well, I think that's what we would say is that um, Flinders Chase is, is, is always sort of promoted as the jewel in the crown of, of national parks in South Australia. If it can happen in Flinders Chase, then yeah. nowhere is safe. Agreed. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. If there's some way that people can get involved in your campaign, if they can find out more about what's going on, where can they find that information? We have a Facebook page. It's Public Parks, Not Private Playgrounds. If you Google that, you'll get the Facebook page. We'll link to everything you mentioned. That would be so terrific. We'll and put up all the links. We also have uh, email contact that people can go on the newsletter and we will keep them updated with what's happening because we will be having a number of events that we would really appreciate people who care about their parks um, being part of the protest. And, and especially as we approach the, uh, the centenary of Flinders Chase National Park because a year ago we were right in the midst of planning, we were uh, involved in, uh, in monthly meetings with the Department of Staff um, planning the 100th anniversary and then when this came up um, that all we just pulled out of that entirely and so yeah. now we're, we're planning a whole series of of uh, events around the 100th anniversary of National Park, but um, against this development. And if I could just say one other thing, is that it's not just the Friends of Parks, uh, the three Friends of Parks groups on Kangaroo Island, Eco Action, an environmental advocacy group on Kangaroo Island, and um, other people who aren't even associated with other groups, both in Kangaroo Island, but the wider community, the National Trust supports what we're doing, Conservation SA, Wilderness Society, uh, the field naturalists who were Association of South Australia who were uh, pr principally involved in establishing the park, the Royal Society. Mm. There's a list of well-known agencies who are saying enough's enough. Yeah. Colin and Bev, thank you very much for taking the time and I appreciate everything you guys do. Thank you for the opportunity to, to speak to people. Thank you. You're welcome. Cheers. podcast was hosted by me, Bradley Bianco, and produced with my dedicated team, Christopher Jolly, Mile Tarrant, Adam Toombs, and music by Darcy Whitaker. If you'd like to support the production of this show, please consider joining the Biology Society as a member at www.biologysocietysa.com. If you're enjoying this content, why don't you check out our back catalogue? We release a new episode every fortnight.